Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Katie Trotta. She has also previously been a guest on this podcast and teaches at Campbell University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and a graduate from Northeastern University. So go Huskies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Trotta. Hello. Thank you, Dr. Geyer. Thanks for having me again. Hey, it was such a pleasure the first time we wanted to bring you back. That's why. You know, <laughs> um, love that. <laughs> so we wanted to talk today about it's huge controversy in pharmacy, ivermectin. We're probably all sick of hearing about it, but we're going to discuss it a little bit here because it is kind of controversial. And we both sit on different sides of this, but from like reasonable discussion points, right? So when you talk about ivermectin here and we talk about some of this, like, you know, some people just shudder because I've worked in you know community pharmacy and we've seen just crazy scripts and people come at like yelling at us against it, whether we're filling it or not. So we're going to try to make this a little more civil. Likely have a little back and forth, but again, this is all just kind of in like the professional discussion manner. So, Katie, you kind of mentioned you're okay with dispensing ivermectin for COVID-19. Can you kind of state why you are and kind of how you're okay with it? Sure. So I think one of the things that we agree on, um, which most pharmacists, I think, would agree, we're definitely not okay with like the random, I find a doctor online requested a prescription for ivermectin and I'm getting it filled at a random pharmacy. So definitely want you to have that relationship with your provider. But if you do, if you have a relationship with your provider and they kind of decide, okay, early COVID, you have COVID, maybe you have some other risk factors for more severe COVID or COVID prevention, you have increased risk for whatever reason, and you had that relationship and that visit and it's an actual legitimate prescription and it's also in a normal safe dosing range, I say go for it because, and my reasons are the two main ones. If it's used within the normal range, the side effects are so minimal that it's going to be safe for the patient. Although the data is mixed, there is some data that shows that it might work. And we know that once you progress into severe COVID, it's obviously very severe and our medications and treatments are not the best. So if we can do what we can in early disease to prevent, then I think that that's the way to go. Okay. That's my overarching opinion. Okay. And so I'm going to dig into that a little bit here and kind of play off that. Normal doses, I think, is a key here. And that makes me a little more okay. Some of what we've seen, and you can say if you've seen this or not, but is we've seen some doses that are just kind of off the wall, to say the least, like three, four, five times, if not more, of what the dosage range is. That prescription comes into you. What are you doing? Yeah, so that is just the same as any other medication that we get that's outside of a normal dosing range. Like, I'm not going to fill a prescription that's way more than what we would, what is safe. So if somebody brought me a blood pressure medication, like let's say amlodipine, the max is 10. If somebody brought me a prescription for amlodipine 30, like I'm not going to fill that because that's not the appropriate safe dose for that medication. So same goes for ivermectin. If somebody brings me a prescription for a dose that's three times what's in what's the safe dosing range, like of course I'm not going to fill that prescription because it's going to be dangerous for the patient. 
Yeah, and I couldn't agree with that more. In fact, we've seen where some people online will actually comment. I had a laugh at this just as a pharmacist that, you know, they said they were either pooping out worms because that's the sign that's working when actually it was just kind of messing with their bowels and how everything, some of the side effects with it. Or they were getting really blurry vision and kind of the vision disturbances that are associated with the high doses. And they're like, that's a sign it's working. And you're like, no, that's no (laughs) wrong. And that's why, like, that was one of the reasons, too, and why people it was getting a bad rap. Because, I mean, I don't know if you have tractor supply in Ohio, but (laughs) people are like going to tractor supply and getting the horse dose. And I mean, if you're a normal human, you're not the weight of a horse. So you shouldn't be like drinking the formulation of ivermectin that's supposed to be for a horse because that's how you're ending up like <laughs> getting sick. You know, there's never a better visual for that than I went to a pet pharmacy one time that specialized in compounding and they had a vaginal enema, douche, whatever you want to call it, for a horse. Sure. And it was like the size of like a two gallon drum. And I was Massive? like, oh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's horse doses. That's that's not human doses. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing you said there was physician established relationship or established relationship with a physician. I think that's huge too, because a lot of people in community pharmacy are getting just random prescriptions sent from like random states. I know personally, when I was working community, I had a patient from Michigan. I'm in Ohio, so we already don't like Michigan, but, but it was sent <laughs> from San Francisco where the doctor's office was to Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm sitting there going, right. wait, and then the dose was like triple, whatever it should be. But even so, I'm like, wait, what is going on? And when I called the physician, I'm, they were like, well, either you can dispense it or I'm calling the state board. They immediately got threatening. I'm like, whoa, there was no discussion here. I was just calling to course. check. <laughs> and then the other thing, was that even your patient or were they just a new patient that was randomly, randomly bringing you a prescription? Right. So but, they don't have a relationship with the provider. And then they also don't have a relationship with you as the pharmacist. And to your point too, right? So let's talk about, we talked about physician relationship, pharmacy relationship. There was an article that Time put out the other day, which you might hear me click here, but uh, it looks like it, it kind of called out this Ravku pharmacy sold millions of dollars online of ivermectin. I forget how many, let's see how many prescriptions, yeah, 340, at least 340,000 prescriptions for $8.5 million were, again, I'll call out bad actors in our profession where they uh, yeah. they <laughs> were failing. They took a $173,000 PPP loan and turned it right into an online pharmacy where they were filling tons of this stuff which uh, with a high profitability because I'm assuming they weren't contracted with a lot of these insurances so people were paying cash and just getting what they pay for. So, Right, exactly. People will pay cash for it because they want it. Yeah. So what was your thoughts with some of that, obviously, kind of seeing some of the bad actors, even on our own side with this? It's really sad to say, but and I, I do say this a lot, like, and I'm sure that this is true in every profession, but there's just a lot of bad pharmacists out there. And it really makes us all just like it, it spoils it for the rest of us who's working hard to promote high quality patient care. And that's an example of just bad pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wouldn't say there's a lot of bad pharmacists, but I mean, even if you have like you know, one per- <laughs> if there's one, <laughs> if there's one percent who's bad in any profession, it's always what seems to dominate the headlines. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's dentists, physicians, nurses, whatever it is, it's it's what you sure. hear about are the the errors and the egregious issues. So, anyway, diving into this a little bit more, so we kind of talked about the telemedicine part, and there's a group out there that I kind of shared this with you into the podcast called the FLCCC. Right. Can you kind of talk right. about what we talked about with that? Okay, so I hadn't heard about the FLCCC, so of course I googled and I pulled up 
there's a lot to unpack with the FLCCC, but for <laughs> if you don't know what it is, basically it's just it's the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. The part we're going to hone in on here is about ivermectin. And, of course, there's, like, the click here for how to get ivermectin. And there are the tips on here for how to talk to your pharmacist about how to get ivermectin and, like, things that you can say to your pharmacist to convince them to give you ivermectin. (laughs) Not on board with any of that. So don't (laughs) like any of that. But I will say, which we hadn't talked about this, but I'm going to say, I looked at their iMask Plus, so they have this protocol for prevention and early outpatient treatment, which I think is essential in our fight against COVID and maybe something that we haven't really focused on enough as a whole with our treatment of COVID. So they have obviously ivermectin, which we're talking about now. But in addition to that, they recommend vitamin D3, vitamin C, quercetin, which is mixed in my head and then zinc and melatonin which is the immune supportive supplements that they recommend to help for covid prevention or early treatment and i would i will say that i do i'm on board with that supplement regimen i think that that's good i think there's data for each of those to show what they do help with whether it be inflammation supporting of the immune system to help if you do get covid to not be as sick. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. You know, and I'm not really opposed to any of that stuff for the most part. Um, sure. Obviously, like we said, I kind of disagree on the ivermectin part. But the one thing about it that we have to really kind of remember is these are, we're talking normal doses. And I've seen again, Correct. of course. I, I've seen a lot of people coming in trying to get like 50,000 units of D3 to like take daily. And you're like, that's probably yeah, not no. a good idea. Correct. Although there is some good information on this website, there's also some not so good information. So it's kind of mixed in my opinion, which is, which is, I think is very interesting because this was a group who early on kind of called for the use of steroids in COVID, which I'll be honest with you. I thought was kind of silly that, that people might not have been using it anyway. So they were right early on in the pandemic about using right. steroids. I don't think, I don't remember if they specifically call it hydroxychloroquine, but they called out steroids so like prednisone, dexamethasone have all seen some improvement with COVID depending on where you're, where you lie on the spectrum, obviously. So they were right on one thing, but then they were wrong on this. And, you know, I'm a pharmacist who's generally worked in, you know, community pharmacy. So there's things that I know pretty well about just diabetes, hypertension, managing diet stuff with people. But when it gets to some of the more nuanced stuff, sometimes I might not know everything about oncology. So, you know, I wouldn't wade right. into that. And I think that's kind of what they did here with some of their stuff. They were right on one or two things and they tried to extrapolate it. And people have called out, hey, they're right on this, so they must be right in ivermectin, which is right. not always the case. <laughs> yeah, and, like, a lot of the, like, so some of the things that they're saying is, like, theoretically, it might work. Like, we don't actually know in the setting of a clinical trial if it works, but in theory, for how this works in your body or in your immune system, it should work to help right. to prevent or treat your COVID. And so that is kind of where the gray area is, I think. Yeah, and one of the studies that I think it was them who cited it uh, was actually based out of Egypt, which in America we always like to say, well, was it based on our population, which is a whole other discussion about (laughs) anatomy and differences and people of different backgrounds. But the one in Egypt was pretty much wildly plagiarized, and there's multiple people of reputable sources who have come out and called that, and that was the most favorable ivermectin study. And if you take that out with that one, there's also a little mix, but probably lean from what I can see 
towards use. But if you take that one out, it becomes very much in the middle, if not slightly on the negative. But again, we don't know what we don't know until we know it. And this is kind of one of those things that I think we have to kind of take that one study out when we look at it. But again, normal doses, safe doses with an established relationship who's been properly assessed are kind of your key here when you're looking at a lot of these things. Absolutely. So, you know, again, they were right early on. So, hey, that's one way I would kind of look at this is you can be right and be wrong on the same topic about different things, which I think a a lot of America has lost. All right, we're going to move on here with a little bit of a general advice thing, but it comes into play big time with ivermectin. When it comes to filling things off-label or outside of normal dose, what is your approach to that? Because a lot of people look at ivermectin off-label and say, we use other drugs off-label, and that's you know right. kind of a straw man argument here. So, okay, so I think that's interesting because, unfortunately, just how it is in community pharmacy today the vast majority of the time that we're filling prescriptions in community pharmacy, we don't know the indication. We are just filling the medication and we can assess if that medication works with the rest of the patient's medication profile, the patient's demographics, and then obviously, of course, we need to know if the medication is within a safe range or dosing range. So the majority of the time we don't know if they're using like, okay, if I'm feeling lisinopril, I'm going to assume that they're taking it for their hypertension, but I have no idea if the doctor is giving them that for some random thing because we're not privy to that information. So I think it's just, I mean, I don't know where that lies with my opinion. I just think it's interesting that now all of a sudden all a lot of pharmacists are coming forward and saying like, we shouldn't be filling things off label, but more than likely you're filling things off label all the time and you just, don't know. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I think an interesting one for that, that I've seen, and this kind of blurs the line and I probably err more on not using things off label. Not that I'm going to say we should never use things off label. That's again, this is not a black and white issue. This is all in the gray. But a lot of times you see the generic Ravaccio used for ED treatment and it'll just say like, take two or take five because you got to get the milligrams up to make Viagra. And right there's some insurance issues with billing that. And, you know, when it comes to treating pulmonary hypertension versus ED, are they going to pay for it? You know, how many will they pay for? But in like, in that instance too, you know what it's for because it's in this like SIG for the drug. But a lot of times we still wouldn't know like what people were using it for if it was off label. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's not because I've, I've had that issue too. But you know, one thing that I always look for as a pharmacy is, what are we on the hook for, right? Like, could we be audited for that yeah. and then get the whole thing taken back? Because we all know how PBMs act, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> of course, any excuse. Yeah, and so I, th- I think it's an interesting discussion to have and how we document that. What would be the best way that you see either fixing that or documenting it or approaching that situation from the pharmacist end? Like if we don't want to fill it? Well, or if we do, either way. I think for the PBM issue, the majority of the time right now, it's not covered anyway. So we don't have to worry about getting a chargeback and people are willing to pay for it. Fair. Um, but I definitely think it's, you want to ensure the dose that it's in the correct range. So it's weight-based dosing. So whether that means you need to ask the patient for their weight or document it on the prescription and ensure that they are taking it in the correct range, I do think that that's important. Like I wouldn't want to go three or four times above like the upper limit of the dosing range for the medication as we talked about earlier. 
Yeah. And you know, this actually, it's funny to bring that up. So I was thinking of instance, as we're talking, I had a doctor write for sertraline 600 milligrams daily before for somebody. And I was like, Oh hell no, I'm not filling this because I couldn't find a reason. I even reached out to friends who are, have, have their MDs and, you know, work in psych as pharmacists. And they were like, no, you're not filling that. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and and right. the doctor actually reported me to the state board who then came and looked at it and was like, what the hell is going on? Why would he write this? I'm like, I don't know, but I, I didn't fill it. <laughs> right. And, and so I think that was interesting. And it kind of draws this question of like, where do you draw like an ethical and a professional line? Like if you had to draw, like what was kind of like your tipping point when it comes to making a decision around like, a professional decision or even like an ethical decision in a case like this? So I always approach it from a point of education. So I kind of feel like if you, if a patient brings you this prescription and it's very, uh, it's a high dose and it's outside of the normal range, to me, I would want to explain to them, listen, the reason that I don't feel comfortable filling this medication is because it's a higher dose than what has been studied or what we know it to be safe with this drug. And I want you obviously to have a medication that's going to be more beneficial than it is risky. And so that's why I don't feel comfortable feeling it. It has something to do with the fact that it's whatever medication it is. It's just not in the correct dose. And if you take it, like there's more risks to it than the benefit that you're getting. So that's how I would approach it. And then of course I would be, you know, I'm not going to hold the prescription hostage if they want to take the prescription somewhere else. At knowing the information that I provided to them, it's up to them to be able to do that. So yeah, I think the, that's what I would do. The only time I've ever held a prescription hostage was if I knew it was fake or diverted. Right, a or, fake control. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really an interesting line there. And I think that there's always that do no harm factor, right? Right. Yeah. Like, okay, if I'm going to give this to you, at the worst, is it going to do no harm? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, man, it makes it for a really tough line there because then you're having to, I think a lot of people don't realize, and I think it does depend state to state, that pharmacists are equally responsible for the prescription as the provider or the prescriber is. Exactly. And the prescriber forgets that. Like, <laughs> I had a prescriber one time tell me that I couldn't ask for a diagnosis code for something because it was HIPAA. And yeah. I was like, I'm caring for the patient. Do you understand how HIPAA works? <laughs> like, I'm not asking for it so that I can tell my friend. Like, I'm asking for it so I can provide patient care yeah. that is within the confines of HIPAA. And, like, what? And that actually works for dosing, right? So we're talking like off-label, right? So you just want to make sure that it's appropriate? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting one. I've had that happen too. Ohio has a law where all controls have to have a diagnosis code, so we have to. Yeah, it was a control that was the that I was asking the diagnosis yeah. code for, of course. It it seems to always be controls are the hot topic drugs that always get caught in conversations like that. We just hope they spelled HIPAA right at this point. Right. <laughs> all right. So, any other advice you would give to pharmacists or heck even lay people when it comes to kind of dealing with some of these more contentious or, you know, hot button drug issues that can be you know, hotly debated? I would just say for pharmacists, the biggest thing that I try to like instill in my students when we're talking about things, and if you're listening to this and you're an established professional, hopefully you've already done this, is just make a decision and stick to your guns. Like don't sway and don't show like any weakness to your patient. Just be like, this is the decision I'm making. If you're going to fill it, then fill it and do it with confidence and feel good about it. If you don't want to fill it, do it with confidence and explain to the patient why you don't want to fill it. 
and that's it. Don't be like wishy-washy in your decision because your the patient is going to see weakness and they're going to jump on that and it's not going to be a good situation. So just decide what you want to do. And then, of course, communicate with your patient if you're not feeling it. Happy to transfer this prescription for you to another pharmacy if you can find somewhere that's willing to fill it. Not going to, you know, leave you without your medication, et cetera. Um, and I think that's that's how I would approach the situation if I didn't feel comfortable filling it. Yeah. One thing I would also add too to that is make sure you do your due diligence. Like if you need time to like call the doctor, or you're you're not comfortable, yeah. but you need to get more information, and the doctor's office is closed or whatever it is. Make sure you're doing your due diligence, and if you won't fill it till you get proper due diligence done, that's also fine. Of course, agreed. Yeah, yeah the uh, <laughs> it, I hope a lot of people listening to chains kind of take that device to, from both of us there and do your due diligence and stand your ground if you are firm in your decision because. Yeah, I've seen where some of the corporate teams are like, hey, you can't refuse to fill this. It's a valid prescription. You're like, no, you can refuse it. You are the professional here. That is key. Yeah, you can refuse to fill anything you want to refuse to fill and don't let anyone tell you that you can't. And you are responsible if you refuse to fill it just as if you did fill it. That is key to remember. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. So, hey, usually you ask people for the two questions I normally do at the end of this, but what is a uh, a time that you had an interaction like this where you stood your ground and you were, you were glad that you did it? I don't know about maybe standing my ground, but the example that I always remember is like when I am, when I was on residency and if I'm helping somebody pick something in the OTC aisle, let me and this is like near and dear to my heart because I teach OTC to the P1s. Anytime you go out in the aisle and you tell them like, you can get this or this to help. And they're going to be so confused. They're not going to know. They're going to think you don't know what you're talking about because you're giving them two options. And they're not going to get either of the ones that you selected for them. But if you go out there and you say, this is what you need. And you just pick one of them and you tell them with confidence, this is what you need for your whatever you're coming in for. This is how to take it. This is what to expect. They're going to get it. They're going to buy it every single time. So I just, you know, that's why I always say, make your decision and then stick with it with confidence and they're going to listen to you. It works. Telling you it's all about the presentation. I do think pharmacists being very introverted could always use a little bit to boost their confidence or to show a little more confidence in our knowledge. Oh, we, yeah. We are the drug experts and I cannot exactly. stress that. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So, hey, Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast. You've been amazing as always. And listeners, I hope you learned something about kind of some of the ins and outs and the both sides of the ivermectin here. Uh, we both kind yeah. of have our own opinions on it, but I think it's interesting to kind of hear how we approach them from different angles. So as always, thanks for listening to Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Mm-hmm.